This episode of the King's Hall is brought to you by Private Family Banking Partners and our supporters at patreon.com. Are you angry with me, Gandalf? He said as their guide went out and closed the door. I did the best I could. You did indeed, said Gandalf, laughing suddenly, and he came and stood beside Pippin, putting his arm about the hobbit's shoulders and gazing out of the window. Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own, for the sound of that laugh had been gay and merry. Yet, in the wizard's face, he saw, at first, only lines of care and sorrow. Though, as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Minas Tirith. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Well, welcome to this episode of the King's Hall podcast. I'm one of your hosts. I am Eric Kahn. Dan Burkholder is joining us. Dan, how are you today, sir? Fantastic. Fantastic. So, so, and then yeah. we have and then we have Brian Sovey. Brian, Brian, he's had an interesting morning. The sweet psalmist of Ogden has oh, had man. an interesting morning. I'm, I'm yeah. just hot right now, guys. Someone was rude to me on Twitter. You wouldn't believe it. On Twitter. On Twitter. And I'm just, you know, so annoyed. So so flustered. Dan, I, I, <laughs> I'm like feeling like tweeting. I'm almost feeling as if I might tweet like Eric Kahn for 24 Wait, hours. You don't enjoy being slandered and called a heretic? You know what? Believe it or not, I actually don't. Huh. Yeah. It seems like Eric enjoys it. Eric is like, I was forged in it. <laughs> Born to it. Oh, you think darkness is your ally? <laughs> uh, no, it's good to be here, Eric. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, gentlemen, we're talking, by the way, about being fountains of mirth. Yes. Uh, which is sort of, uh, I came out of the womb being like that, a fountain of mirth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but Dan, I just want to ask you a question. <laughs> originally, we, we you were reading the cold open. Originally, we had voices. Yeah, I'm actually a little... I let down, to be honest. I, you know what? I was too. Just give us a I little just taste. didn't have the stones to do give it. Give us a taste. All right, fine. I'll make a fool of myself. Just for- It's a podcast about joy. It's between friends and, right. and thousands of other people. Thousands of other people. <laughs> Are you angry with me, Gandalf? <laughs> he said as their guide went out and closed the door. I did the best I could. <laughs> you did indeed, said Gandalf. Uh, even though there so probably good. has to be a different accent there. It's fine. I liked it. The, the only one that I've heard that was better was Andy Circus. Yeah, that's it. It goes Andy Circus. It goes Dan Burkholder, Andy Circus. Those are the only two competitors here. That is wow. basically how it goes. High compliments. Yes, I miss my call. I mean, all of us. When if you're doing it right, we should do a whole episode on this. It's fathers read storybooks to their kids in voice acting style. Oh, it was actually really distracting as I went through the the story because I wanted to do voices yeah. and I kept telling myself, "Don't do the voices," but you have to. And then you have to like think of a new one for like, okay, what does Faramir sound like and then against what did Boromir? The, what did Pippin sound like before? And how is it different than yeah. Mary? How did I? <laughs> and then you just realize that there's kind of a shifting There's cast. a hobbit <laughs> yeah. sound. There's a general hobbitry. Yeah. And that's it. You know what's really annoying? So I'm reading the boys, uh, the mouse and his motorcycle. And uh -huh. I keep doing the mouse voice for Ralph. And yeah. then, but then I get confused for the boy, yeah. Keith. So all of a sudden I'm reading Keith in like, the hey. mouse voice. Oh, never mind. And then I correct myself. Yeah. Anyway, it's Kids fun. don't notice. No, Kids don't notice. they don't care. Actually, they preferred no voices. They are wrong. They are wrong. <laughs> they <want> no voices. <laughs> Uh, gentlemen, this is tied very closely to something we'll be talking about in this episode, which is fathers 
who bless their home. Sometimes mm. it's the way they read books. Sometimes it's like Gandalf. They're a fountain of mirth. Yes. So one of the interesting things we, we talk about a lot in-house is how our feminist culture loves to associate things like patriarchy with sternness and harshness and a somber joylessness of tyrannical oppression. And sometimes, unfortunately, this can be how many homes are with or without patriarchy. It doesn't necessarily mean it's associated with patriarchy at all, but a lot of homes are joyless. But gentlemen, this is not the picture the Bible gives us about patriarchy. Instead, as Doug Wilson has said, fathers are to be the blessing man in their homes. Mm. So we're going to talk more in this episode about what that means and how you can do it. But I want to start by talking about an article uh, that we were talking about in preparation for this show. And that's from Joe Rigney titled First In, Last Out, Laughing Loudest. Brian, you had actually mentioned this uh, because we were talking about how do you handle criticism mm-hmm. in a past episode. And um, perhaps your morning this morning is a good example. <laughs> how, how do we win long term? This is something that's kind of struck me about like Tucker Carlson. Yeah. Is he's always laughing. Tucker is a little like Gandalf in that scene in that even when he's stern, he's always just a moment away from this like really deep, sincere laugh. Yes. And he also has several modes of laughter. One of them is laughing over his enemies, stupidity. <laughs> it's like <laughs> mocking. Yeah, where someone says something, he just goes, ha! With, it's so good. Even with like the – there was like the trucker conversation with Ben Shapiro. Mm-hmm. And he was like – he was laughing in his face and he was like, are you joking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just kept saying that. It was that. so funny. He was, Yeah. Are you serious? Uh, I love this. I love this article. I've, I've actually uh, heard this from Joe Rigney who wrote the article. Uh, many different times and places he's written about Narnia and talks mm-hmm. a lot about King Loon and uh, just the, the model of King Loon as – a fatherly, jovial figure in his kingdom. And uh, it's a great article. You should go read it. It's on Desiring God. And uh, you should pick up Joe's books, The Things of Earth. Uh, what's his Narnia book called? Living Like a Narnian. Living Like a Narnian. Yeah, one of the chapters is on King Loon, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a minute since I've read it. But he he just has a, a great way of capturing in this article and those works the heart of masculinity being something that is strong and stern and grave and dignified and and very much has gravitas to it. And yet we can all sense when somebody has those things in a Denethor way where it's like a cold sternness. Mm. Like he was wise in many yeah. ways. Oh, he could, absolutely. He foresight, he could see. In fact, the, the blood of Numenor ran truer in Denethor than it did in, you know, many in Boromir, for example. Uh, he was much more related in Tolkien's world to the kings of old in that he had a high sternness to him and a wisdom, a far sight. Um, and yet Denethor was main. I think this was a character trait that was um, exacerbated by the rings power as you find later, or, yeah. you know, by the, yeah, yeah. by his, uh, not the ring by Sauron, driving with Sauron through the Palantir. He's cold and high and distant. Whereas Gandalf, who's actually far greater than Denethor, is grave and you know quick to anger, but he's also quick to laugh, and he has this well of mirth in him. Um, Lewis describes uh, points to Lewis to I'm sorry, Rigney points to C.S. Lewis's description of King Loon as the archetypal king who's first in, last out, laughing loudest, laughing over a scantier meal when hard times come upon the land in you know brighter clothing. Uh, the first in every attack, the last in every desperate retreat. There's like a heart of masculine glory that should have a well of joy 
in imitation of our Father in heaven, hmm. who is the epicenter of indestructible, eternal, unchangeable joy because he's righteous. Well, I think one of the most interesting parts of the Lord of the Rings is that the most powerful person, I believe, in Middle Earth is Tom Bombadil. Arguably. And does not fit the mold. He's a jolly singer. I'm actually going to bring up Tom Bombadil later, mm-hmm. but but I just had to had to put that as a comment yeah, it, because I mean, and I think there's an argument that Sauron had more power in the sense that uh, Gandalf says that if everything else fell, Bombadil would fall last. Sauron would defeat him. But Bombadil's power is more primal and true. It's good. And he is literally runs around rhyming in yellow clothing and singing to little to animals and woodland creatures and trees. Amazing. Incredible. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's great. I love in Joe Rigney's article, uh, he references Psalm 19, verses 4 and 5, which I'll read. And it says, In them, the heavens, God has sent a, set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Mm. So I love this as a picture of a father in the home that you should be like the sun. And I think what's being pictured here is the shining face of a bridegroom as he sees his bride coming. Of course, yeah. Dan, Dan will – you've seen the little video where they always show the guy like crying. No, I haven't seen that. Yeah, they always they always transpose it. So it's like a guy crying as the bride's about to walk through, and then it'll show like a giant buck walking yeah, in front of a yeah, it's like a like a <laughs> <laughs> that sounds uh, yeah, it's a great clip. However, in this case, like uh like the sun, fathers are supposed to have this shining face of joy within their homes. Again, Joe will talk about having gravitas, mm-hmm. but also having gladness as we sort of run our circuit with joy. You think about the sun as well. Everything on earth is touched by the sun's heat, right? So yeah. this this glory, this glow, this reflective energy is felt by everyone in its presence. And we'll get into this more, but you can understand how if a father is dour and he's bitter and he's grumbling and he's complaining, well, that also has a, a, a Denethor effect in mm-hmm. his kingdom. Mm-hmm. So we're encouraging fathers to think of that uh, sort of that kingdom element. And are you like the sun? In that way. So, gentlemen, I want to ask you a question, though. Uh, we often talk about gravitas as a weightiness or dignity of bearing, but why do you think gladness uh, in so many homes is often forgotten, neglected, or it's just so difficult to cultivate when we're thinking about manliness and fatherhood? Well, so I've got a thesis. Mm-hmm. I've, I've thought a lot about this question. I think that because people don't have a good picture of masculinity, they make it up almost like a caricature. And Mm. I think it proves out if you look at the pictures uh, given to us as a display of masculinity in particularly stories that are told mm-hmm. in the modern day, that you'll find most of these characters despise joy, almost like joy is an anti-virtue for these men of gravitas. And I'll give you some examples. So movies like, and these I'm not saying these are bad movies, so just take that with a grain of salt, but movies like Die Hard, Predator, Dirty Harry... Uh, the Godfather, Scarface, Gran Torino, uh, all these displays are definitely masculine, but all portray men whose characters and plot lines would kind of fall apart if there was joy. Gran Torino might be a little bit of a an outlier there, but yeah, but he's uh, mostly um, Walt is mostly grumpy. Yeah, he's a grumpy, dour, like you know, and that's I mean, there's uh, there's flaws yeah, in, in this yeah. argument, but my point stands that. That masculinity that is being displayed to us 
is generally joyless. And I think that these characters tend to be one-sided for a reason, and that's because our culture doesn't have uh, a good grasp or they're confused on what true masculinity looks like. So writers are essentially grasping at caricatures of Mm -hmm. masculinity, uh, and they're somewhat missing the mark, I think. Instead of virtuous masculinity, most of these masculine characters uh, that have shaped our society display anti-virtues, like anger Mm -hmm. and vengeance and bloodlust. Um, and I'd, again, that's not universal, but it, I think the reason that j- joy seems to be forgotten and almost opposed to masculinity is because of the lack of good pictures and understanding yeah. of true masculinity told in stories and probably also in real life because we also have another picture of what what is a joyful man in a movie usually look like by these storytellers. And it's usually a silly and immature sort of guy. And you'll find that in comedies like Will Ferrell and Chris Farley and others, they act essentially as happy idiots or, or you have characters that are the uh, comic relief. Yeah. It's like Riley pool in the greatest movie of all time, national treasure. (laughs) Who is the, the bit character next to Nicholas cage. It's funny movie. And he's, he's, he's like adult. He's he's yeah. funny, but he's adult. He's he's the greatest movie of all I'm time. I'm sorry, is did I say said? that? No, it's actually the, the Shawshank Redemption is the greatest movie, but it is. I actually unironically love National Treasure. So. <laughs> it is pretty funny. So anyway. uh, my question: If you think of other movies, Dan, I'm I'm intrigued by this. Uh, other movies that display the right kind of masculine, joyful character. Can you think of anything modern? Anything modern? I mean, oh yeah, because I'm going like back in time mm-hmm. to to think of that, like John Wayne. Yeah, well, any Often of those. his characters were like, you know, he would laugh a lot yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in his movies. And he was displayed, I think, as a, a more well-rounded, interesting, masculine mm-hmm. character. Uh, I'd have to think about that. Because even like John Wick, like mm-hmm. there's Keanu Reeves is not laughing. If you're a pagan and you've watched those movies, I mean, I haven't. But I'm, I'm just kidding. But any, anyway, the, the point is, yeah, let, let me think on it. Let me think on it for a minute. But it is, can, it is just an interesting picture because and, and then you think about, uh, you know, Real life types of fathers that we've experienced. Mel Gibson does this a lot, I think. Mm-hmm. In in like, um, uh, what's the one about the Revolutionary War? The Patriot. The yeah, Patriot. the Patriot. Yeah. I think he does that. There's some joy. Gladiator. There, but is yeah the character before? I mean, you understand why he's broken, but yeah. in his initial state, mm-hmm. he was a good man who had joy mm-hmm. with his children. And yeah, we were that, soldiers sure. again with Mel yeah. Gibson. Yeah, Mel I Gibson. See, hey, I mean. But I do think uh, it goes back to like J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, C.S. Lewis. They they clearly both guys had mm-hmm. studied pretty much everything in the English language and beyond and beyond yeah. in terms of literature. So these guys were, I think, drawing from a deeper, more ancient well. Yeah, that is typically missed in today's culture. Yeah, you, you see it in in the characters in Rohan and how they are related to like Nordic and northerly pagan peoples. Who had uh, this this mixture of the warrior spirit and the singing and the the mead hall? I mean, that's yeah, very with much like Beowulf. And, yeah, yeah. The, the Beowulf the type of mead hall sort of scene uh, captures both of those things. I think. Yeah, and and the reason I, I I mean it might seem like I'm overstating a little bit because well they're just movies, but peoples are shaped by these sorts of characters. Yeah. I mean societies. There's a reason that the Odyssey and the Iliad and the Aeneid and like all of these great works of history, these fictional works have 
lasted so long is because in them, what you're seeing is uh, a storyteller giving a very compelling picture of what the ideal man looks like. Yeah. And so th- that's why I say it seems almost foreign to have a Tom Bombadil. Right. Because we don't have a category for a Tom Bombadil. Yeah. In, in answer to your original question, Eric, the, the gravitas, gladness, the, the the marrying of the two, why are they often forgotten and neglected? I think one of the reasons is because, uh, especially when it comes to like, say, our people, the camp of people who are maybe patriarchal or they're pursuing like a, a good Christian masculinity in the world, is that a lot of the time what we're reacting to is we're coming out of a culture that is, it uses humor in a very cheap and shallow way. And so you do see humor often, or you can be tempted to see humor and gladness and joy and smiling as feminine traits or as silly traits that rob you of dignity and gravitas. And so sometimes men can overcorrect and actually end up aiming to be overly grave where they're like, I'm never going to smile. I'm never going to laugh. I'm never going to joke. I'm never going to be that, that sort of guy. I think there's an oversteering that can happen in our culture. Well, I think of even like John Piper, he, he rightly, he would talk about the problem in American preaching with flippancy. Right. And so like the the opposite was like just a grave seriousness at all times yeah. over everything. Right. Um, you never stoop down to be the blessing man with your children, the joyful man, the the joking with your children, laughing, being silly. Like a good man needs to know how to be silly with little kids to be a good father. It's part of the range. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, So I want to ask you guys, in terms of gladness and mirth and how it can be an important part of wise fatherhood, how it can change the temperature of a home, do you have any examples or things you can think of in which you've seen this be the case where a a joyfulness, even in kind of times when you might not expect it, could have a, a, a deep impact on the culture of the home? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I've got little, uh, four little barometers or whatever in my, my home with the little boys that I have. And if you've had little boys, you know that they love to fight, mm-hmm. uh, and not in like a, Hey, let's have fun wrestling each other and not hurt each other and cry. And like, uh, they, they, they love to fight. And I have noticed if I don't set my mind right before I walk through the door and I'm going to have four little guys, they're running at me, daddy's home. And I, they all want hugs, and it's great. If I don't respond in a positive way towards them, if I don't you know, greet them with joy, I can tell that evening is going to be a hard one. Mm, yeah. uh, it, usually it's after the fact. Like, what in the world happened? Dinner, like fussers. They're fighting with each other a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it has to do with me coming into the home as, just like tired and grumpy or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Versus greeting them, being warm and engaging with them. I think that's another important part. I'm sure, fathers, you guys have noticed, if you sit around the table and you're quiet and kind of reserved and introspective, which happens at times. I mean, you know, you get weighty stuff at work or whatever, but generally the temperature of your home is cooling versus a very active and lively, engaging and joyful dinner table, which is definitely a much better table to be at. You yeah. know, it, it results typically in a, a raising of the temperature, a warmer atmosphere. I don't know if you guys have experienced that as well or if that's just anecdotal. No, I think that's definitely true. I think a lot of times – I've said this in past episodes, uh, but a lot of times you, you, you'll you have a rough day 
And uh, wiser pastors in the past have told me, like, those are the days when you go home and you make it fun intentionally. Um, you, you do Maybe it's family game night, but you're intentionally saying, I am not going to give in to the dour, complaining, introspective, Dan, to use your word, uh, type of atmosphere. The other thing I think about is uh, so, some – I think this is one reason Moscow has been effective and Doug – yeah, uh, because uh, I remember when they were going through a lot of the church scandal stuff, Doug had said publicly, you know, Nancy gave him a really nice bottle of scotch and said, it's going to be a difficult season. And so we're going to bring out the best. You know, this was sort of another thing. If you read, uh, I think it's Sabbath rest. It's a Canon press book that was put out on the Sabbath. And they talk about how that day is supposed to be a day, especially of joy. So you bring out the best meat, the best wine. So that's another way for fathers to think about that is you actually have to do something to cultivate this joy, right? You make an intentional effort, again, to bring out the best, bring out whatever your children's favorites are. Mm -hmm. And it may be particularly wise to do that in a difficult season. With the banking industry in another tailspin and the Fed ready to raise interest rates again, many of you are asking, when will the madness stop? Are you currently placing 10, 15, or 20% of your income into the volatile stock market and subjecting your hard-earned cash to the whims of Wall Street? You already know that this is not an effective and safe wealth-building strategy. Our sponsor, Private Family Banking Partners, will show you a powerful and safe way to build guaranteed multi-generational wealth. With their guidance and step-by-step method, you will be able to create your very own privatized banking system. Imagine being able to direct major portions of your monthly cash flow into your banking system and immediately start earning tax-free compound interest. Once established, you will have access to your money through a private online portal. While your money is earning uninterrupted compound interest, you can use that same money as collateral for other investments or to start a new business or self-fund major life expenditures. Best of all, no new money is needed to start. See their contact information and access their free book in the show notes below. I think another question, though, that I want to ask you guys that's related to this is where does joy come from? Right? Sometimes it's easy. I think in our culture, we have an overload, burnout, busyness culture, and we can over-spiritualize this. Mm -hmm. Obviously, joy comes from the Lord. Uh, The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. But also taking stock of your life and saying, I'm working 150 hours a week or whatever it is, and I'm starting three businesses, and there's a million areas of stress in my life. It's going to be really hard to be joyful in that sort of experience. So so part of it, too, is practical. I want to get you guys' take on that. Where does joy come from? What produces joy? How should you think about that as a father in your own life so that you can be a a fountain for, for your kids, for your wife? Well, I think we have to start by by recognizing that the term that – the title that we bear, father, is a reflection of God's title as father, that mm. he's father. So we're always trying to be imagers of God the father and his bearing and demeanor so that our children will then image it back and outward into the world. When they go out, our children are going to image us. If all they see is a father who worked really hard but was cold, distant, absent, not present, overly dour or grave, they're, they're likely going to respond to that in some way and image it, whether in overreaction and becoming like class clown or 
by, you know, being the sad, bitter child who's like, well, yeah, dad, thanks for the inheritance, but you didn't really love us. So I think it's really important that we start foundationally with a theological understanding of the father's bearing. And this is where I think it often goes wrong, is that people tend to, men and women, tend to relate to God as if he is a sort of overly grave, unsmiling, um, distant, cold deity who is at, at all times totally displeased with you. But if you're a Christian, then that's like foundationally that you're, you've got that completely wrong. I mean, Zephaniah 3, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Mm, that's the, really good. The, the, he's the father of lights, James says, from whom comes down every good and perfect gift. Jesus talks in Matthew about the, the father who doesn't give his son a stone when he asks for a meal. And then he's like, and God, the father is, is he's much better than you. So if you would do, if you wouldn't give your kid a stone, what, how much more will the father give you good things when you ask? So it's like, I think first we have to recognize as fathers that the thing that the being, the reality that we're fundamentally aiming to image in our home is one of joy and gladness and love because of the covenant, because of our covenantal standing in Christ, God is well pleased with us. And so if you feel like God is not well pleased with you, it's very difficult to have a deep well of joy and thankfulness to then operate out of an image. I know there's more practical things than that too, and, and I'm sure you guys will bring them and we can talk about that. But I think fundamentally, some of the error and issue in the outworking, your theology comes at your fingertips, is that if you, if you conceive of God as foundationally angry with you rather than pleased in you, oh, and he's a father. Well, it's like you're going to be continually angry with your kids because they're they're not going to they're they're frustrating and annoying sometimes they don't obey all the time there's a lot of discipline that has to happen in a good home so it's easy to slip into like well I'm going to be angry with my children the way that God is angry with me that, and that's not even the correct way to discipline no that, that's a really good point Brian I, I remember uh, I think it was a couple of years ago you were preaching Matthew five on the Lord's prayer is that right yeah it was in it was in Matthew. Is it uh, Matthew 6, 9? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Somewhere yeah. in there. Um, but I remember you preaching through that. We were not here yet. We were just going through a very difficult season. And I remember you saying that, uh, talking about prayer. Because the, the Father, uh, when it comes to prayer, mm -hmm. Jesus tells us that the Father is eager yeah. and willing to give us good gifts. Yeah. And so I think being challenged with that, I was at the time, uh, do you believe your Father is a giver of good gifts? Yeah. I, I think it's also connected to something Doug Wilson says in Father Hunger. You know, however our earthly fathers were, and authority figures in general, that's how we tend to see the world. And you look at America and you're like, okay, we definitely have a fathering crisis. But I think also most of the authorities in our lives, think about work, the authorities that you experience there. Think about the American government. It's basically like bureaucratic filth. Mm -hmm. Those people don't care about you. Yeah. And so I think when people experience that all the time, it's easy to just live in the world where – you're not overflowing in the joy of the Trinitarian Godhead, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it seems like we need preaching that addresses that. We need to study the scriptures. Yeah. Um, we need to be in communion with Christ so that we are, you know, ourselves fruitful yes. and overflowing. Uh, Dan, thoughts on that? Yeah. So one of the things I, I think it could be practical is uh, this really became obvious to me 
uh, as a shortfall personally when I was disciplining my kids because when they would fight and bicker mm-hmm. uh, amongst one another and I would say like, hey, boys, you're not practicing uh, self-control, self-discipline. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to say no to yourself and to love your brother as yourself. That's what you need to do. And it, it's at that point I realized like, oh, wait a minute. This is a, this is a problem. This is why often I don't feel joyful is because I had said introspective before, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you're at the dinner table, you're being introspective, you're like chewing uh, like bitter, you know, like bitter food in your thoughts mm-hmm. and like why you're upset or w- whatever the reason is. Personalities aside, some people are just more disposed to being like, chipper than others. Mm-hmm. But, but really, I think the core of being joyful is that it has to be an outflow instead of an inflow. You know, just like it, it, internal thoughts. Yeah. You have to be able to say no to yourself mm-hmm. through self-control and self-discipline mm-hmm. and instead think to others and think to their good. And so, and I know this is true because of Hebrews thir- or Hebrews 12, uh, where we get this picture of Christ and it says, in view of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of God. And so Christ, in the moment, he's carrying the cross. He has a picture of joy that's set before him. It's not, it is for his own glory, ultimately. And that's, you can have joy as a father because you can look to your kids and go, hey, if, you know, if I'm faithful to God and his word and to, you know, managing my responsibilities well, blessings await. Like there's promises all through the scriptures for that. And that is for your own glory. And that's great. But ultimately, you also have this view, like Christ did, not that we're saviors. Are we saviors? <laughs> are we saviors? Anyway. We are called so, to imitate, the, yeah, imitate one. We are. Aren't yeah, we? Yeah. But Christ, so I, I mean, at the, like the worst act ever committed against a person in human history, uh, apparently Christ had joy that was set before him. And part of that had to be because of the love he had for us, that he endured all of this. And so I think that one of the keys to being a, a joyful man, a joyful father, is to get out of yourself, to yeah. say no to yourself, and instead to love others mm-hmm. as, as an overflow. Because obviously Christ love, loves us. We have the joy of the Lord. It's our strength. Like All of those things are true. But I think you, you know, in the practical moment at the dinner table, when you're like, man, I just, I just don't want to be here right now or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Instead, you have to say, no, no, I exist not for my own pleasure, but for the, for, for the responsibility of the, those that God has given me and to pour yourself out for them. And I think that's really a good picture as to what uh, practically joy is supposed to look like is it's, it's functionally loving your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. One other thing I would say, uh, and this comes up a lot in counseling, you know, throughout the years, you'll talk to people and, you know, we, we end up talking a lot about, you know, the temperature of homes and are you a joyful person, et cetera. Uh, you know, do you have the fruit of the Holy Spirit? And a lot of times what comes out in those conversations like, no, I don't have joy. I'm really struggling with joy or being gentle with my husband or patient with my wife, whatever it is. You're like, okay. And sometimes we can overcomplicate things, right? And then, and then you go back to John 15 and Jesus said, if my word abides in you, you will bear much fruit. And if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
So then, then I, as a pastor, I will say to them, okay, very simple question. What's your Bible intake like? Mm. I don't really read my Bible. Oh, you know, what's your prayer life like? Well, you know, for 30 seconds before I fall asleep, I roll a few prayers through the old mental chamber and then I fall asleep. Okay. Do you lead in family worship? No, no. You, you, you start getting down this path and you said like, well, the only way to have joy is to participate, as I said, in the triune relationship with the triune God. So if you're not doing that, right, it would be like, well, of course you're emaciated. You don't eat food. Your mind is not being transformed by the spirit. Yeah. And if you want it to be, you have to be in the word. So I would just encourage people yeah. on that front too. You'd be shocked how many times guys are like, I've read every single one of Joel Beakey's systematic theologies. I've, you know, all this high theology, Bavink, all of it. What's your daily Bible reading like? Well, you know, it's kind of been. You know, it's interesting. There's almost a theme. So what I said was like self-discipline. You're mm-hmm. also saying discipline, spiritual disciplines. Yeah. And so it, it seems like maybe there's a, a, a thread there through joy being an act of discipline. Do you yes. think that's right? Well, it, yeah, because if you want the fruit, you have to go to the tree that it grows on. And it's clear in Scripture. I mean, it's utterly theologically clear that the root that grows things like joy is the fruit of the Spirit. The, the Spirit of God is where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control comes from. So it really is so simple. And often we want to we want to psychologize it, we want to thera- therapeuticize it, we want to go into our own navels and find joy and like why am I not joyful? Or maybe Let you me could think just take about a pill myself. For that. You know, if I could just figure me out more, maybe I'd be more joyful. I'd be like, that's not where the joy is. It's not in you. The joy is in the spirit. So participate in the covenant, the God of the covenant, the blessings of the covenant, the the disciplines of the covenant, uh, participate in the means of grace within the covenant. And God says, oh, and I'll give you this thing. It's joy. And, and then what we often want to do is like, mm, yeah, I, I, I understand all of that. Is there like a different way to get it? Yeah. But then, yeah, you may understand it, but are you practicing it? Mm-hmm. There's there's a difference between knowledge and maturity. We talk, We talk about that all the time. So it, it, it really is, I think, way simpler than we want to make it. We want to make it about your, uh, you know, whatever, what's the ENTJ? Myers-Briggs. We, you want to make it about your personality type, and it's like, okay, fine, whatever. But have you read your Bible, prayed, confessed your sin, participated in worship, sang a psalm, um, intentionally uh, said to your body in your soul, no, submit to Christ and bless your people, love them, be merciful and kind and gentle? And, and I think what can tend to happen, again, we're talking mainly to people who are in our camp here, right? What can tend to happen a lot of the time is that we can overemphasize certain traits that we think of as archetypally masculine, like combat, pugilism, and, and forget that pugilism and those things exist for the sake of the kind, joy, merciful, soft, gentle, loving fatherliness that you have at home. The, it's supposed to protect that. Well, if you don't have that at home, what are you fighting for anyway, right? Yeah, I, I think you're right, and I think this is why, t- to Dan's point earlier too, our culture tends to have myopic views of masculinity when, in point of fact, biblical masculinity is very dynamic. It has a full range. So I was thinking about this the other day. You have uh, Jesus in John 11 and 12. Um, in, in one hand, he is like just mercilessly – Flaying yeah, the Pharisees. Absolutely, without I holding mean, back. he's like, your father is the devil. Hey, guy, by the way, your dad is Satan. Your dad is Satan. <laughs> and they're like, and you know how I know that? Because he's a liar and so are you. Oh, you, you think speak Ab- his language. You think yeah. Abraham is your dad? 
Oh, actually, it's Satan himself. So, like you can't get any more. <laughs> you right. can't get any more serrated edge than than that. So on the one hand, you have Jesus doing that and being the pugilist, and then like two seconds later, he turns around. Lazarus has died. Mary and Martha come to him, and you can imagine this scene. They say to him, "My Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not be dead." Mm. And he doesn't refute them. And he spends time with them. And the Jews are so moved because Jesus is weeping and they say, see how much he loved this man. Yeah. So he's very different with the sheep. Yeah. And I think, again, that's just a, a, a microcosm, a small picture, but masculinity is supposed to be like that. Right. And patriarchy is supposed to be like that, where you can be tender with the sheep, mm-hmm. but not with the wolves. You do something different with the pigs. Yep. And you do something different with the dogs. I want to ask you a follow-up to that, Brian. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, we've seen this with Joel Webin. Uh, with a lot of people attacking him for what they think patriarchy means. Right. Patriarchy means always having a, a level 10 voice where you're always right. yelling at your kids and you're yelling at your wife. Often like, while Joel responds in the most irenic and calm way possible, it's hilarious. I mean, it's absolutely hilarious, but go on. So I think this is a form of a straw man. Yeah. And yet I think there can be examples of a joyless patriarchy. So yes. my question to you would be, what would be the net result of, say, like a movement of joyless father rule what would it produce what would that culture look like one of the things that it will produce is it will die yeah it will not reproduce itself because uh, beauty is its own apologetic joy is its own apologetic uh, humor and laughter and mirth is its own apologetic because again those things incarnate something that is deeply true about god's essence and nature god because he is holy and unstained by sin is utterly joyful like, God is always joyful. He is ever uh, eternally joyful. That is in his essence because he's not stained by sin. He has no regrets, no shame. There's nothing hanging over him. He can do whatever he wants, and everything he wants is good. So if your movement doesn't embody that, if your culture doesn't embody that, it's not attractive. It, it will often have the air of, like, a, a room that's been closed up for too long and not get any sunlight. And people sense it, and they don't, it's just anemic. So I think of, again, when you, when you look at something like Christchurch, Moscow, the CREC, it is at its best when it combines that full range of masculine mirth and strength and gentleness and kindness and uh, love of women and shit. Like that's the things that make people leave churches that hate Doug and go to the CREC. I am convinced that one of the most important things is the mirth. Mm. It's that those people, if you go, if you're in their midst, they are exuding joy. I mean, and they're sinners. Like, of course, we're all sinners. But they exude joy, which tells me that they're keeping short accounts of sin, that they're connected with the vitality of the root of Christ. Uh, he's the vine, they're the branches. You can't bear fruit apart from him. If you're bearing the fruit of joy, genuine, authentic joy, you're probably connected to the vine. So when you have a cold patriarchy or a cold fatherhood, cold home, all the way up to a cold movement— it just won't last. It doesn't have staying power because you have to have the heart. Proverbs, you have to have the heart of people if you want them to imitate you and, and follow you. I think that that's such a good point. Beauty and glory and joy are their own apologetic. It was such a good point. Um, I formulated a tweet. Did you tweet it? <laughs> I'm about to. Uh, Dang but, it. <laughs> but, but you're right. Like Those things are inherently attractive to uh-huh. people. Um, this is one thing I think in, in some of the fundamentalist camps, like actual – fundamentalist actual tend toward legalism that will have some form of this is kind of the Gothard thing with some form of patriarchy. Yeah. But it's 
a lot of times joyless. And I think what happens is you have a lot of apostate children because yeah. the kids are like, yeah. it was not a fun place to be. Right. It, it was, was an not, iron cage. Yeah, that's right. It well, was it's, oppressive. It's tyrannical rule because you have a father who's assumed the authority, uh-huh. but then does not exercise it benevolently, you know, to his, for the good of his people. So yeah. it's, it's, it's tyrannical. If I could just speak a word in praise of conferences for a second, you know, because conferences have gotten kind of a bad rap recently on Twitter. People are complaining about how much they cost and whatnot. Some of them Andy's are looking at me super expensive. About them. Well, here's the thing: none <laughs> of us actually are big conference goers. Like, I've I've never to my uh, very rarely. I think we we go to Grace Agenda a lot. I bring the whole family, but we don't do the conference circuit thing. But one of the things that I think can be helpful about a conference. If it's a good, like take Grace Agenda in Moscow, and I won't use us as an example, but you, you go up to Grace Agenda, and what happens is sometimes a lot of spurgy guys that really love the theology, but don't have the heart or the imitation, they get to go be in the presence of the people, and 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 if they don't get that, sometimes the enculturation fails, and so they get like they hear us maybe talk about modesty, and then they go and they turn on ev- all the women in their lives, and they're just jerks. They're like constantly being the the skirt police or the whatever it is. And they're just like rude and angry and bitter and they don't know they don't have social grace. But like if you came to if you came to our church and you lived with us for some time, you would see that we are not continually railing and harping on like feminine modesty or anything. And yet, over time, the culture of our church is very modest, feminine, and beautiful in the women. Mm-hmm. It, but it's not because any time a new lady shows up and you know gets involved in the fellowship, she gets whacked over the head by seventeen grannies and five pastors who are sitting her down and like yelling at her and like giving her a, a measuring tape and like a, a handbook on how to dress if you're gonna if you're if you're not gonna get kicked out of this thing. It's because there's a culture, so it can help sometimes to not just hear the words of the teaching, but to go see the bearing of the people and and the teachers. Yeah, and I think it goes back to the Psalm 19, like with the sun and glory. Glory is attractive. Mm-hmm. People will be drawn to it. There's so many young people in our church who've come in the last couple of years. And, uh, you, you know, you'll notice like wives start wearing more pretty dresses and, and, and you'll ask them like, oh, what made you want to do that? And they're like, well, I just saw the women and it was glorious. And, and, they seem and happy. I'll even ask them, I'll say, did anybody ever say anything to you about modest dress? And they're like, no, no, not one time. Yeah, I mean, I'll, it's what they didn't say, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and the point isn't like, and we don't even have standards. Like, I mean, yeah, the point isn't never teach on these things or never confront sin or obviously there there are examples where we would absolutely say like, hey, young lady, you need a dad. Like, let's let's we gently, kindly help her and say you're you're not honoring yourself because we love you. Let's help you. But the point is that the thing that is attractive to people and what leads people most often, in my experience, to repentance is kindness. It's kindness, it's joy, it's mirth. It's seeing the fruit of joy in a practice that is flowing vitally out of the doctrine. And that's why they come to love the doctrine most strongly is because they've experienced it. They came to the doctrine through the fruit. And, and what gets backward a lot in uh, circles, you know, in uh, especially high theological circles is that there's not as much uh, interplay between those two things. Because the doctrine sometimes is not getting enfleshed in joy and mirth and gladness. And so the people are only coming through the doorway of the doctrine, but they don't know how to put it into joyful practice. And so the key ingredient of mirth and gladness is missing. And that's not attractive. I don't think it's compelling. I don't think it replicates. It doesn't have staying power. 
Yeah, I think that's really good. Uh, I, I think you could say the same sort of about the theonomistic reconstruction era of the 80s to 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of the fruit of that movie was highly schismatic. So even a lot of the doctrines would say, oh, this is actually, you know, reading some Rush Dooney, very helpful. The fruit of the movement, not very good. Um, so I think that goes to something that Brian had said too, like with uh, reconciliation, uh, being churches and people and movements that practice peacemaking, um, that we're able to resolve sin and we're able to uh, move forward with that. Uh, I want to transition now as we talk about uh, archetypes of mirthful fathers. Dan, it's really helpful a lot of times, like when I read Tolkien and I see the way Gandalf is, it's actually an inspiration to me. And I say, oh man, I need to, <laughs> I need to dig deep and figure out how to be a joyful father. So let's start with Gandalf. Um, sort of what ways, I know we've talked about the return of the king and Gandalf's joy and mirth there, but in what ways do you see him being sort of an archetype of the mirthful father? Yeah, well, interesting. Brian keeps talking about how men have to have range. And I think Gandalf is one of the epitomes in in literature of that man who has range. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because you see him before Denethor, and I mean, they're very well matched, and it is incredible the way that yeah. that uh, Gandalf in, interacts with Denethor. You know, in definitely a grave and serious way. Sparks flying I mean, between their eyes. Yeah, like- yeah, and and then uh, in battle, you know, Gandalf is very brave. Yeah, and he's very serious. He is definitely looked to as a leader amongst men. You know, like they Gandalf is here. That's a big deal. You know, but then you see the way that he interacts with the hobbits, Eric. You you had said this yesterday or a couple of days ago. The way that he interacts with the hobbits is so interesting. You know, it, you have a very very powerful man, very powerful in in like his magical powers, but also yeah. in his influence over the great men of that age. And then he's with these kind of silly creatures, yeah, childlike creatures. Yeah, they're so, the hobbits, so great. and he's just so gentle and yeah. great to them and exudes wisdom towards them yeah. and is very patient with them. Like so unbelievably patient, he, like in that, in the quote with yeah. Pippin, you know, where Pippin's being a fool, fool of a took. Yeah. I mean yeah. like at, but then he loves Pippin. Yeah. Yeah, he does. But, well, you, you're the Gandalf. I mean, you're the Lord of the Rings. Part guy. of it, just to get into a little lore here, it's actually important to what, how Tolkien accomplishes this. Oh boy. Get this isn't really, it doesn't come out in the Lord of the Rings snoozy. as much. Okay. <laughs> Gandalf is given Narya. One of the rings of power Wait, by when? by Kirdan the shipwright. When is yeah. this? Why so did the shipwright before you know, before the whole story starts? The oh, whole time Gandalf has one of the rings, just like Galadriel does. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she has a, a ring. Gandalf has a ring. Narya and Narya's power is to rekindle hope in the hearts of men in the faith to stand up to tyranny and domination and despair. So Gandalf is given this ring because Kirdan the shipwright, the elf realizes that Gandalf's task in the third age is going to require him because it, they, they, the elves are starting to recognize they're handing off to men the rule of Middle Earth. And so they need men to be their best. They, the, the, the men have to become noble and good and kind and mirthful instead of what the blood of Numenor did, which was turned into like the black Numenorians where they were obsessed with evil and power and wealth. And you know, when, when they're talking about how they stored up treasures and cared more for the list of their dead ancestors than their children. Yeah, that was, I was going to say one of the interesting things in the return of the King that they talk about is there were no children in Gondor. Yeah. Uh, and so, so Gandalf's his, one of the things Tolkien is showing you, and he does this so masterfully because he doesn't point at it. 
It's not something that he ever says. And then because Gandalf was wielding the ring Narya, had his powers to inspire the hearts of men amplified, he showed it to you <laughs> in the way that Gandalf related to the hobbits, in the way that he tried to win the heart of Boromir, but the ring, the, the one ring, you know, overcame. He, he in constantly inspires people around him. And so that's why I pulled that quote for the cold open of Gandalf's deep well of mirth, because I think fundamentally that's what Tolkien wants you to see about Gandalf is that because he is righteous and good and masculine and grave and inspires the hearts of men uh, inside of him, most fundamentally is not anger. It's not battle. It's not rage. It's joy. It's mirth. And that's what inspires the heart of men because the, the, they have to have something they're fighting for not just against. You know, that's interesting because you see a character pro progression with Theoden that was towards like the dour, yeah. you know, joyless, hopeless man. Yeah. And then towards the end in battle as he's inspiring exactly. his men, you know, you definitely see that yeah. progression. He overcame the poison of Saruman through joy and mirth and inspiration. It wasn't the ring that's like you zap people like the Captain Planet rings or whatever. <laughs> it was, it did something more powerful is the point. Tolkien shows that the power of the enemy is a power to crush, brutalize, despair, um, destroy. It's, a, it's the power of the machine of the cold steel. But the real power, the righteous power is the, the warm power of joy, mirth, gladness, love, it, that's why it's it's so deeply Christian is because this is true about the world. Do you think um, as I've – so I've been reading two books, Return of the King, and then reading Pat Buchanan, uh, Hitler, Churchill, Unnecessary War. It, it I can't help but think that Tolkien was – all of this storytelling was so shaped by what happened in World War I. Mm -hmm. Like he, he's literally watching these things happen – where mechanization and industrialization yeah. is destroying the world and you see Saruman's tower and everything he's doing. Yeah. The things that uh, Tolkien will say about green things, but, but also Brian, to what you're saying with the joy, anti-tyranny, look at the tyrannies that were going on around the world. It was horrific. Oh yeah, absolutely. Men were being ground into the, the earth by the millions for no reason. Yeah, just this big charnel machine of war and power and industrialism. So do you think it was shaped by what was going on in his real world when you talk about all that you just did? Yeah, I mean, because again, think of the way that, um, so like an industrialism, uh, an unhinged sinful capitalism that treats people as a means to an end of wealth instead of treating wealth as a means to love people. This is the most fundamental way you can get wealth wrong is to make it about you make the people a servant of the wealth. So he's seeing all of this. And in his story, he, he shows you in a way that is more powerful than any philosophical or economical argument that uh, the key to the to joy of human existence is uh, love, joy, it's righteousness. It's not to wield the power of the enemy to try to take the power of the enemy and make it serve you. That will never work. You can't just have your whole civilization built on anti-Sauron. That's, it can't do, you can't do that. You can't build anything on just, we hate Satan, for example. You have to build on, we are the father's sons. We are Christ's men. Um, we are in his covenant. It's the kingdom of heaven invading the kingdom of earth and overthrowing and conquering and, and, and ruling and bringing the rule and peace and way of the gospel to the world. So you have to have a positive vision that you're fighting for 
that is rooted in the nature of God and his joy and righteousness, not just anti-evil. You know, I think this is really shown in in uh, Lord of the Rings and the scouring of the Shire. Yeah. And so you have that influence, I think, from World War One, where you see, you know, buildings and the great trees are cut down and everything like that. Yeah. And then you have the hobbits come in as like sons of the king, you know, in yeah. a way, you know, from Aragorn and the influence from Gandalf and, and they come in and they are carefree. Mm-hmm. You know, Sam is like, I'm going to, I'm going to punch this guy in the nose and there's a whole lot of orc talk around here. Yeah. But then you see these, this hilarious scene to where the, the jailers <laughs> yeah. are being led by the hobbits. Yeah. And there's somebody that says like, well, who's leading who, you know, uh, it's just I a hilarious picture. But, but I think uh, that kind of shows that picture as well in the scouring of the Shire. Yes. Mm. When, uh, let me see if I can find this quote where, okay. Yes. It, where he says, don't forget I've arrested you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the hobbits is like, okay, he says, but as they came to the east end of the village, they made a barrier with a large board saying no road, and behind it stood a large band of sheriffs with staves in their hands and feathers in their caps, looking both important and rather scared. Uh, this is what it is, Mr. Baggin, said the leader of the sheriffs, a two-feather hobbit. You're arrested for gatekeeping or gatebreaking and tearing up the rules and assaulting gatekeepers and trespassing and sleeping in shire buildings without leave and bribing guards with food. I can add some more if you'd like it, said Sam, calling your chief names, wishing to punch his pimply face (laughs) and thinking you sheriffs uh, look like a lot of Tom fools. And then he says uh, later they're on the road and one of the sheriffs says, because they just keep going on on their horses and they can't keep up. And and he's like, all right, you can go on, but don't forget I've arrested you. And Frodo's response is so good. He says, I won't, said Frodo, never, but I may forgive you. And it, the, the at the end of the point, it's like Frodo and the hobbits have learned true jovial uh, masterly rule. And so their goal isn't to crush their enemies. It's to love their enemies. Mm-hmm. They want to win and redeem the hobbits and and so think about how this should suffuse the way that we even relate to like other Christians where you're, where you're going, there's a joviality that I think you should have when you're relating to a theological enemy that you hope is still on the team where you're like, look, I'll forgive you for all of your stupid stuff that you've been saying about me on Twitter all week or whatever. I, I will, I won't forget about it, but I will forgive you and let's be friends. I think of the way 80 Robles is always being on Twitter. He's so funny. And he always embodies this where it's like, he's just so kind to the, to people that hate his guts. And it's so attractive. Like you want to follow that because he, it's the love your enemy. He cares about his enemy. There's just, I I don't know how to put it, but there's, uh, there's like two ways that Tolkien is always presenting in the books, the way of the power of darkness versus the power of light. And the like, it always seems like going, reaching for the the biggest insult that you have, the biggest rejoinder is the right thing to do. And the hobbits show us, I think, that the way to win is is joy, mirth, love, forgiveness, grace. What do you think the and strength con- too? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. But that is strength. What do you think the connection is with somebody like Tolkien and Lewis between wit, which they clearly had? It's a lost art yeah, in, in our days. Very few people have it. Uh, What's the connection between wit and joy? I do think that part of it is intelligence. Like there's a sharpness that we find attractive again, because what is it? God is all wise, all knowing. 
So, so you see glimmers of that in his image bearers where some people are just so smart and they just have a keen wit. But then again, it can be used in the way of the enemy or the way of Christ to where there's a keen wit that is turned towards true mirth, true joy, tr- true righteousness, true love. And it's so attractive. Yeah, it's like a benevolent self-control. Yes, it's so attractive. And then there's like the sharp, acid, biting, sarcastic, dark, malevolent sort of wit that is that thing curdled and corrupted. Mm. And, and and that's absolutely – like pe- it's a tr- people like it and it can draw a crowd. But at the end of the day, it's it's acid. It only eats away. It doesn't upbuild. So there's definitely a relationship between the Christian who has a well of Christian joy, who then is maybe God gave them this great gift of intelligence and wit, and they can turn it to where they can really make someone look silly, but they're really controlled in the way that it's used. Yeah, Soderman did that. Yes. Yeah, he was – the way that he used wit, his wit and his intelligence, even when uh, – in in Two Towers when Gandalf is warning, you know, the yeah. fellowship, hey, hey, just be careful. He has power in his mm-hmm. words. And then you can see that the way that he interacts with them, how it does discourage and it eats away. It tears them down. Yeah, it tears them down. The way he yeah. lo- he he makes worm tongue into just a subhuman creature by the time he's done. Yeah, is through words, and all of this, by the way, does have to do with our thesis of fatherhood, because <laughs> it really does. Because think about the way that your your own the power of your words as the blessing man in your home. You can be the blessing man or the biting man mm. you're always tearing everybody down you fathers absolutely men in general if they're to be men of gravitas and range must be experts in using their words to build up that which is true good and beautiful and not fall into the trap of the cynic the cynic and the sarcastic rejoinder where he they 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 look at people who are nice and kind and like jovial and they're like ah you're just you know you have thomas kincaid glasses on your face and whatever it's like, well, you have whatever no country for old men glasses. Like you're a nihilist. You have to have a positive vision in your home for how the power of words and bearing to build up or to tear down your children, your wife, your home, your culture, your world, your church. Well, and I think one of the ways that we see this modeled, uh, we see it throughout the pastoral epistles. But Paul often, when even when he's got scathing things to say about the Galatians yeah. or, or the Corinthian church. You'll still find him in places like Philippians 1 yeah, where he's saying, you know, I rejoice over you and give thanks always because I know that God who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. Yeah. So seeing that in your people and being joyful about what God is going to do, mm-hmm. is doing, um, that you see these things displayed, he's clearly not just focusing on their faults, yeah, which would be easy to do. So I think one of the tools that we have to be very, very careful of using and that there is almost no time as a father, you should be using it with your children, and that's sarcasm. Mm, yeah, sarcasm is a really interesting word. It's uh, from the Greek, and it means to uh, tear flesh, to tear flesh. Mm. And so, I think you see that as a theme within mm. Lord of the Rings as well. Yeah, where you have sarcasm being used to tear flesh, and it's almost always going to hurt when yeah. used as a father. To undermine your own gravitas. Well, I've often to, heard it mm-hmm. said that sarcasm is veiled hostility. Yeah. It's oftentimes not it's very passive veiled. Agra- aggressively veiled hostility. Well, yeah. And yeah. and so again, if you look at the picture of the the good ruler in Lord of the Rings versus the tyrant, I mean, you you do not have uh in the in the good ruler, in Aragorn, in 
in Gandalf, in any of the the good pictures of these kings, mm-hmm. do you have sarcasm being used on your friends? Right. And I, I don't think there's space for that as a father to be used on your children. I think it's one of the greatest ways that you can provoke your kids to wrath. I absolutely agree. It's actually a rule between my wife and I, no sarcasm. And if one of us catches the other, we try to quick, like quick, not in, not in a way that like undermines front children, but say, Hey, don't no sarcasm because a kids don't understand it. And, and so it just leaves them feeling like, well, dad is clearly mad at me. Mom's clearly mad at me. It's, it's effeminate. Well, and it's really, it does far more harm than just like having a biting word towards your kids. Because if you think about childhood development, you know, it's probably different with older boys. Um, but with younger kids, they don't have this, this abstract mm-hmm. way of thinking. They haven't developed that. They're very linear in their thinking and yeah. it just hasn't developed yet. And so it does leave a lot of confusion, a lot of hurt. Yeah. 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 I would actually say, uh, with older boys, I noticed this particularly, um, as my kids, you know, now 16, almost 14 for the older boys, whatever you do as a dad that is like, I'll say is like bad. Like sarcasm. If you're sarcastic 10% of the time, they will be sarcastic 40% of the time. Like the the way that kids filter is, you know, unfortunately you have to be aware of this as a parent. Like they'll amplify all of your bad habits. Yeah. Think, think about like most of your life as a man isn't using your sidearm. It's not using the sword. It's like the butter knife for the table. I mean, that's 99% of the tools you're, you're picking up and, but your (laughs) kids, obviously in your case, Definitely 99%. Yeah. Kids are always going to want to reach for the biggest, strongest gun in well, the arsenal, though. Think about this, Brian. Even even our little boys, it's, it's it was a joke in Sunday school uh-huh. because our sons would always – they were like – they would pray imprecatorily every, every time. time. Yeah. <laughs> and, we're, and we had done it like one time, one Sunday. You know, we don't pray imprecatory prayers like every week or, you know, we're normally praying like, Lord, bless the, you know, bless the people. Here's the trials of the church. Bless the preaching of the gospel in other pulpits in in Utah. Even though those churches don't like us. Yeah, even though they don't like us or, you know, they have lady pastors or whatever. And and then our kids hear Eric like one time preach against Planned Parenthood. And then the next thing you know, every prayer is like, Lord crush the teeth of all of our enemies in their mouth. Dash their defense against the rocks. Yeah. Yeah. Give us victory over the radical two kingdoms, guys. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Calm down. Hang on, hang on. But, but I think as a, a parent, being aware of that, and then so what I've had to do in my home, uh, because sarcasm has been there and a critical spirit from me, so is repent to the children and then say, hey, this is a problem. Uh, we need to change. And that means that I have to change. You have to be witnessing that. Um, and then, and then working on, okay, if it's not sarcasm, I would point most people to Ephesians four only speech that comes out of your mouth is that which is edifying Ephesians four twenty nine yeah. that yeah. which builds up your brother. So we'll just have questions in our home. Are you building up your brother right now? Yeah. Is this, is this edifying? And I'll be very honest. There are times where I will scold a child, mm-hmm. especially one of the older. And one of the older would be like, wow, dad, is that edifying? Are you building him up right now? And you're like, <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. Now, You're like, don't he, use the deep magic on me. I was there when it was formed. <laughs> I will tell people. I will tell people. I remember Toby Sumter saying this. Uh, he said, I can never remember a time when my dad lost his temper. And, and that is like, an astonishing. And I'm like, okay, for, for the rest of us witness. mere mortals. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to encourage guys. You will sin. 
you may lose your temper. You may be overly critical. Yeah. It is never too late to repent. And the thing is, the way that you will lose your children if is if you act like a hypocrite. Yeah. So my rule in the home has been, and I, I feel like it's been fairly effective, it, repent honestly to your children. Yeah. And, and I will just say to them, look, I know you're being really critical with your brother, and it's because I've been really critical with your brother. I've set a poor example. I need to repent of this, and we need to work on this together, mm-hmm. where we are edifying and speaking in a way that's going to bring encouragement to the home. Yeah. And we talk about it and say, okay, dad, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm sorry too. Let's let's move forward. You cannot sit there and berate a child and then be mad when your child does it to that same sibling or to one of the other, you know, because you've set the pattern. Mm-hmm. So I think honest, honest repentance is key there. Red meat is a staple of a healthy protein packed diet, but not all meat is created equal. That's why I buy my meat from Salt and Strings Butchery. Salt and Strings is owned and operated by my friends, Quinn and Samantha Bible, and the meat they offer is raised, harvested, and processed exclusively in Southern Illinois. It's cut and packaged by my friends, Quinn and Anthony, and not only is it the best meat I've ever had, well, all their meat is sourced from local farms that share our Christian values. Salt and Strings is now offering a beef and hog box that can be shipped directly to your door. The 15-pound beef box features 100% black Angus beef, and includes ribeyes, T-bones, sirloin, chakros, fajita meats, and ground beef. You can order your beef box today for just $259. They will send it directly to your door. The hog box is $239 and features premium Duroc pork, including eight thick pork chops, one of my all-time favorites, pork steaks, cured and sliced bacon, ground pork, bratwurst, and breakfast sausage links. You can place your order today at saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. And also be sure to follow Salt and Strings on Instagram. We'll also include the link in the show notes. Yeah, I like another related passage to what you brought up from Ephesians and Colossians, where Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to how you ought to answer each one, mm. each person. And, and it's a, such a good point because it ha- there's the full range right there. Be gracious, seasoned with salt, and and so you know how to answer the Pharisee, who is the son of the devil, and the little child who's in error, and your friend who needs to be corrected, and the sheep, and the wolf, and like this is so practical. You, what we tend to do as people is get stuck in one mode and not have the range we've been talking about. We tend to get stuck in one the, the biggest gun range thing, where like the kids who always want to reach for the most powerful weapon. Yeah, we're always like sarcasm. And dunking on people, I only QT on Twitter. That's my only way of tweeting. I only quote tweet to dunk. I mean, that's it. I feel bad that I made a fat joke about you wielding the butter knife. Did you really? I didn't even notice. I didn't even, I didn't know. even oh, really? notice. I'm so. Did you hear that? Wow, ben? that's a good fat joke, oh, you actually. Didn't? Oh, okay. It's a subtle one. Well, you had said, like, you know, the butter knife is what yeah. you wield 99% of the time. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it shows. Oh, oh, oh. Emotional damage. I did not even. In the emotional middle, damage. In the middle of a sarcasm. <laughs> yeah, like discussion. I am it. sarcastic. You know what, Dan? It was salted butter. You know what? S- seasoned with salt. Hey, <laughs> Lord bless you. That's the way I love the sarc. The best sarcasm is yeah. when someone is in a Twitter fight, bless and then at the end soul. they're like, "Yeah, bless her heart." The yeah. Lord bless you. Actually, my favorite <laughs> is the like. It's probably genuine, but I'm when, always like, when they call you Bud Haas Sport. Yeah. It's hey, like, okay. sport. You're like, I'm literally 10 years older than you. Sport. Sport. 
Uh, <laughs> gentlemen, I, I wanted to talk about one thing. Uh, I think we'll wrap this episode after we do this. And then I think next time yeah. we'll talk about more of the practical. Yeah, we'll do it. We need to do a, a part two that's like nuts and bolts. How, how can a man be the blessing man in his home? Yeah. So we'll get into that more next episode. But it would only be fitting. We kind of began with King Loon. Uh, so I want to finish here with something that Joe Rigney was talking about in the article we cited, which ran on Desiring God. Um, and this, again, he's talking about this from the horse and his boy. King Loon tells his son Kor what kingship is all about. And he says, Brian, you mentioned this before, but this is the quote. This is what it means to be a king, to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. That's the end of the quote. So of this passage, Joe Rigney writes, first in, last out, laughing loudest. Here is competence and confidence, initiating, taking risk, and bearing burdens for others. Here is a king who cultivates his strength for God's mission and the good of others. And he does it all with courage in the heart and manifests laughter in the soul. Biblical manhood bleeds and sacrifices with unconquerable joy. I love that that final quote there. Mm. Uh, so I want to start with you, Dan. Do you agree with Joe? Is this a good picture of masculinity and fatherhood? If so, why? Yeah, I I think that it it definitely is. One of the things that it does is more more so the way that I I've interacted with this. It's not necessarily, okay, what are the theological reasons that I, I believe this is true? You know, how does this apply? What this does is what stories, good stories are meant to do, and it's to win your heart. Mm-hmm. It's to win your heart to an ideal. Yeah. It's to win your heart towards, I mean, who wouldn't want King Loon as their king? Yeah. If that's right. what it means to be a king, I want him to be my ruler. You know, and that's what that's what it does to me. And then I love Rigney's yeah. uh, summary of it, saying biblical manhood bleeds and sacrifices with unconquerable joy. Yeah. And it just furthers that winning, winning your heart because it's such a display of what Christ did for us. Yeah. Think about the opposite of that in terms of a, a, a character that we all know and love from a story so crazy it should be fiction, but it's actually our day-to-day life. And his name is President Joseph Biden. Um, <laughs> Joe Biden is in, in, in embodies the antithesis of every characteristic praised by Lewis in King Loon, where it's their life for mine, protect my wicked uh, son who is literally stealing from the people, and while I uh, unjustly pursue my enemies, weaponizing the legal system that's supposed to exalt, you know, promote justice. Every every aspect of Joe Biden's kingship, we could say, is like anti King Loon. He's last in, first out. Is he the Tisrock? He's the Tisrock. I yeah. will throw waves of waves of my own people until, you know, like the witch in Charn in uh, well, even the with Magician's Denethor. Nephew, too. Yeah. Uh, what he tells. Go uh, win Asgiliath back. Yeah, go win Asgiliath. But he says, every great lord knows that you fight from the back. Yeah. And you're like, ugh. And it's like, I just, when, when you put together a list of the opposite characteristics, you start to realize how central these features are of, of joy and mirth and self-sacrifice and humility and giving of the self for the sake of your people is to proper rule. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about a father. Patriarch means father rule. It's a father ruling in his home, but not ruling like a despotic tyrant, not ruling like a Biden, but ruling like a King Loon. 
Yeah, that's such a great point. Uh, Brian, I also want to ask you, uh, one of the things that's often associated with mirth is song. Uh, I remember, I think it was Martin Luther said something like, anywhere there's a reformation, you're going to see people singing. Yeah. And and there's going to be a lot of attention paid there. One thing that I thought about recently, because it was making headlines again, was the people from Christchurch, and particularly Gay Branch, getting arrested while psalm singing uh, because they, you know, didn't have their masks and six feet of dif- distance, whatever. Yeah. So that's that's making the rounds again. But there's just something about that scene where tyranny is happening. Doug is watching Gabe get arrested, and he's like, well, okay, keep singing. Um, so there's something about joy and its unconquerable power as it translates into song. So I want to ask you, why is mirth and song such an important connection? Why is it important that we're psalm singing and doing the Cantus Christi and all those other things too? Yeah, because when you see when you see any culture that is truly Christian, that's embodying everything that that God intended for a culture to be, uh, you'll always find singing, and you'll always find beautiful singing, and you'll always find beautiful singing that is the singing of the people, mm. and not just a performative singing from a class of musical experts. And I think the reason is because one of the ways that God encoded into our souls as image bearers and reflections of his glory is this desire to uh, adorn language beyond its mere utility with beauty because God, God is not just merely useful. He's also beautiful. So you see God sing in scripture. You see him create a creation that sings. If you read Psalm 19, for example, and then he commands his people to be a singing people. So all of that teaches us something about the target that we should be aiming for, which is one where, it's normal for people to sing. I, I think you see this again in Tolkien. Every single race of people, of, of creatures, the elves have their own type of singing. Rohan has its own type of singing. Uh, the men of Gondor have their own type of singing. Aragorn sings the coronation song, uh, the Etarelu, Endorena Utulian. Etarelu, Endorena Utulian, Sinome Maruvan so he's singing actually the words of his ancestors there in Elvish. Mm. Anyway, the hobbits have their own type of singing. You see it in the Green Dragon. Rohan has its own type of singing that sounds like the riding of horses. Like all of this, it shows, expresses in a thing that's not, it doesn't have like utility isn't the most important thing about it. So there's something, there's a, a glorious effulgence to it. Mm. there's like a it's it's something that you wouldn't expect like from a robot people well it's it's interesting because uh if you look at ephesians 5 uh, starting in verse 18 it says and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the lord with all your heart so paul has just addressed the spiritual darkness people of spiritual darkness living in debauchery it was actually a john piper sermon on this and, and it stuck with me because it was so poignant. He said, you know, the other day we were in downtown Minneapolis and we saw all these drunk people and they always erupt in song. And so the Lord it's, – it's like Paul was looking at drunken debauchery and the songs that come from bars yep. and places like that. Yep. And he was saying, as Christians, you ought to be drunk with the Holy Spirit. So what's overflowing is psalms. Yep. And I thought that's such a great picture. Any people – I mean – you win a championship, you go to the streets of Philadelphia, they're going to burn every car to the ground, but they're going to be singing. It's just <laughs> it's inevitable. Picture. It is yeah. inevitable. But as, as God's conquering people, like we celebrate differently with joy and obviously yeah. not in the darkness, but 
in the yeah, Holy we, Spirit. We revel in the light. What is the thing that people, when they visit our church, who've never experienced like a singing church, what do they what do they talk about? What do they post on Twitter about? It's the singing. Even the conference. And, and we're not the even that great right? at it. Like we're not particularly no. skilled or we don't have a bunch of virtuosic musicians in our church. We're just like ordinary people all singing together in a way that you clearly like we've practiced, like we've worked at it. But that's what people talk about. Like it's actually insulting to me. They almost never talk about how good my sermons are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the, the hangups from people actually the barriers from people actually implementing that is that mm-hmm. they assume you are oh, yeah. a, you know, you're a big name musician now. Like we, we can acknowledge that you're a big <laughs> deal. No, but you're skilled musically. And so people assume, well, I'm not Brian Sauvey. Therefore I can't do this. But if they haven't experienced it before, yeah. they don't realize Dan Burkholder Leads. can lead yeah. worship. You're I going will be to leading in a couple weeks. Two Sundays. I've yeah. done it multiple times. Yeah. And you know what? It's the same. It's it's not different at all. Nothing changes. In fact, it's probably easier. I'm just more embarrassed. Because I That's sing it. so loud that if I yeah. sing the tenor part, I throw everybody off. <laughs> and I'm I'm facing them. So it's probably yeah. better when you lead, to be honest. I don't, I don't think so. But. <laughs> I, anyway, I think that's one of the barriers. But uh, it's a, one of the important parts. Like you said, it's the people singing. It's the people. It has to be the people singing. Yep. They have to have songs. They have to have – if, if, if you really have a people – they must have songs. And you know what's wonderful about singing the Psalms is that God made this songbook and there are songs for the moment. Yeah. There are songs of grief. Mm-hmm. There are songs every you know, range of, of human emotion. Yeah. yeah. Every range of joy, of conquer, yep. of war, you know, uh, all of them. You yep. know, and and so it fits the moment. Yep. So mm-hmm. it seems like Brian like, like you know, and Dan to to that point, a, a culture if it's thriving, it's full of joy, it's it's only it can't help but produce things like art song, uh, literature. When you think about songs, I was thinking recently, Brian, about your project with the heart songs. Mainly you have one song out that's released a mighty host. Mm -hmm. And, um, I hate that song, uh, (laughs) mainly because every time I listen to it, uh, it brings me to tears. Uh, but it, it, it is just a, it feels like a part, an artifact of our culture in this time period, in this moment, and sort of the things that we're aiming at and loving and celebrating, Mm. So I, I want you just to talk about what was this project like for you doing harsh songs? Did you feel like it was coming out of the culture of your home, of the church? What was the connection there for you? Yeah, exactly what we're talking about in this episode. Because what, what I noticed about our life, my family, is that we would listen to music uh, we sing a lot, like every, we sing multiple times a day as a family. You're basically like the Von Trapps. Yeah, we're like the Von Trapps. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no one would accuse us of that if they heard us singing, because uh, kids haven't quite nailed the singing part yet. But, you know, we're singing all the time. But then I realized, you know, we dr- go on a road trip, or um, while kids are playing, there's music in the background that's happening. And a lot of the music that we were listening to is musically excellent, but it, it was encoding falsehoods in beauty. That's what one of the things music is supposed to do is demonstrate the beauty of beautiful, of truly beautiful things or the glory of truly glorious things. And so I thought we don't just need to sing together and we've got that covered. We've got the Psalms. We've got all that. What we also need are songs that will demonstrate the beauty and the glory of truly beautiful and glorious things. And also the sorrow of loss over, uh, truly beautiful things. Mm. So one of the songs on the album is also, um, it's a very sad song and it's about things like miscarriage and the loss of children. And in that song, I'm trying to show 
that children are a blessing, and so it's truly sorrowful when we go through the valley of the shadow of death. The goal with that whole project was to basically say, well, we're Christians, so we know what is beautiful. The Christian home, Christian marriage, children, being around your table, being fruitful, having children, loving them, you know, loving a woman well, all these things are gifts from our Father. So why not have songs that aren't like praise and worship songs? Let's just write some songs about everyday life, uh, spurring my sons on to love and good works and courage. I want my daughters to grow up and be like, yeah, dad, dad loved us. He thought we were glorious. And I know partly, hopefully because of how I act to them, <laughs> but, but also because look, dad, dad wrote this song and it's about, it's like, I wrote a song for each of my girls that's on the album and it's about how beautiful and like how, how glorious it is, how glorious they are. They're the glory of man, these little uh, queenlets running around and and so I I don't know I'm hoping that the song or a mighty host about my my wife and our children as well I'm just hoping to see as our culture matures as a church and also hopefully in many other churches and places as the culture matures and gets thicker that we see a resurgence of things like Christians writing songs about not just worship things but Christians writing songs producing works of art film cultural artifacts that show the world what it is that we're fighting for, what it is that we're trying to build, the glory of God. The left does this so well. They, they, they own all these cultural spaces, and they try to present ugliness as beautiful. Yeah, it reminds me of— Why aren't we fighting back with the same weapons, you know? Something Rag Nationalist said uh, was the left is celebrating everything ugly and hideous. Yeah. So he said, if you're on the conservative right, he said, it's actually really easy to win. Just create beautiful things. You, you know, Chuck Knox was talking about this recently. I saw a cut from one of their shows, and he was saying, like, we Christians, we post way more about the trannies than we do about the glory of our wives at, at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Like, we yeah, quote tweet their stuff all the time because they're the ones out there making content and art and culture and, and trying, to inco- trying to win people. And then we just rage quote tweet it and amplify their message. But are we producing the same cultural artifacts? Because we actually have truth on our side. It, it's interesting. Uh, I want to ask you a question about this. You guys can either, either one. You can both answer. Uh, part, of, part of the issue Christopher Caldwell talks about in The Age of Entitlement is that philanthropy post like 1985. So mm-hmm. like, you know, before we were born, the year Dan, we were born. Great, great era. But philanthropy has all almost 100 percent of it has been directed to leftist causes. So my question to you is you, you need support, right, to create Christian art. So why do you think the conservative right is so poor? Like they just don't fund things like this. They don't fund artistic endeavors. They don't understand maybe the value of it. Uh, we get a lot of stuff like drink liberal tears. Yeah. But we're, but even we're always the conference reacting. thing, even the conference thing that yeah. we were talking about where people were like, why would I pay money to come to your thing to hear you talk to? And you're like, the left doesn't even ask that question. <laughs> they never do. You're like, oh, right in like, the streets, Comic-Con? we'll be there. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm there. $600, great. <laughs> right. right? Like, oh, you want me to, to Wear go- Wear my costumes. Uh, 10 times a year or 15 times a year to the movie theater and spend, I don't know how much money now, probably 20 bucks a person at this point. I haven't been in years, but- uh, We went to a movie recently. Yeah. It was IMAX. I think it was $35 for two people. Are you kidding me? No. So, and and no, no shame about that. They're like, yeah, of course. I will give probably in the average year on that kind of entertainment, I bet even Christian households probably spend $500 to $1,000 a year 
on that kind of stuff alone. And and then you're like, well, what if we uh, like made some Christian, uh, some music that just celebrated like beauty and stuff? And well, I I will say in the in defense of these yeah. of these really massive cheapskates mm-hmm. is that the the content that has been produced has been historically terrible. Yeah, and that's the problem is that it, it go, it's a cycle. Uh, good, truly beautiful things require skill, which requires time, which requires patronage. And then what we do instead a lot of the time is there's cheap veneers of commercialism that is truly poor. It's a poor imitation. It's an echo of an echo of the quality the left is producing. Uh, and it's and then so again, then there's less money for it, and so the quality is worse, and so there's less money for it, and the quality is worse. And People then are also weaponize guilt yeah. in order to support it. Well, I'm a Christian, so a Christian, therefore you, gotta, you should support it. You yeah, have to support exactly. It. Like there are things that we there are businesses that um, are you know Christians that I wouldn't use because I don't think they do a good job. Yeah, I was going to say uh, all those things are true, and then we also have uh, like Black Rifle Coffee. A lot of companies will portray themselves as a conservative because they know there's a big niche of like people who are against like Starbucks mm-hmm. and then you support them. And then, you, you know, a year later you find out that, you know, Matt Bass wife is on OnlyFans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody uh, should do something about coffee. Somebody should do something foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Gentlemen, lots of things come out of great, joyful culture, mm-hmm. like coffee, like great music, like this conversation. Like this conversation, Eric, it's been scintillating. It has been <laughs> scintillating. scintillating. I've been tweeting Brian's comments in this. Eric has been apparently live tweeting. <laughs> live tweeting. Wow. Uh, because it's so good. I actually put your name in there and gave credit, so I almost took it for myself, but then I thought. Mm. I almost said rare Eric Conda, but that'd be that'd be unkind and uncharitable. It, it would be funny, though. It would have been funny. Recently? <laughs> uh, so, Brian, <laughs> I, I do have a few questions as we wrap things up. Sure. Uh, just stuff that we're working on as a team. I know you've got vinyl. Is there anything left on vinyl? There's like 60 uh, sets of the Even Dragons vinyl left. Okay. Um, I will also say that I've started a fund. We didn't actually set this up so I could sh- shill my fundraiser, but I'm, let me shill my fundraiser. <laughs> <laughs> I spend actually a tremendous amount of money making music because I want it to be on par with the quality. This is going to sound like there's no way I can accomplish this, but my goal at least is for it to be as good as anything Coulter Wall or Tyler Childers puts out, which means I spend on average close to $2,000 every song I make. You need release. to start... Actually, chain smoking. <laughs> I know, seriously. Get there. So I have a fundraiser right now that's helping to uh, pay for Hearth Songs, that mm-hmm. seven-song EP I'm working on of original music, and also my next album of Psalm Settings. Uh, I'm trying to raise $25,000 to cover about 70% of the cost of those albums. And then I'm I'm rolling other like Patreon support and things like that into the rest of the, the support for that. So if you want to help out with that, my website's briansove.com and... Uh, under music, there's a help tab. You can jump on support the album, and uh, we've raised over ten thousand dollars so far towards it. Really appreciate everybody that has supported that work. Um, and what that does is it lets me do things like I don't play the fiddle. I can go and hire Emma, a, a Christian lady up in Canada who happens to be a tremendous fiddle player, and I pay her. I don't ask her to work for free because she's put years of work into this. My producer, Brandon, who's a Christian guy I've known for you know more than 10 years, best musician I know, I pay him for every song we do and, and want to give him the what he's worth, which is, I mean, he's tremendously talented. Mm. So uh, this is genuinely money that goes to actually pay the bills to cut. It's not me trying to make an extra buck on, on the music. I'm genuinely just trying to continue to make it. 
So um, I really appreciate everybody who helps with it if you if you like it. And another thing you guys can do is just share share this kind of things with your friends. Send them a King's Hall episode if you thought it was helpful. Um, use a song of mine in a, an Instagram reel. It, whatever it is, like uh, help get the message out and let's stop like just rage tweeting about what the left is doing and, and let's actually tweet or amplify and support the work of positive culture building. So essential that we get this. Yeah, absolutely. Also great to celebrate a lot of the good work that's going on, including Moscow. I know we yeah, frequent the Canon, Canon Plus app. Yeah. Like, Super appreciative of a lot of the people doing great work. My budget has like a Canon input. <laughs> just like <laughs> yes. love what they're doing. And uh, again, like hopefully you see this in the way that we operate as even New Christian and Press is that we're not trying to compete with Canon Press or we're not trying to like put that we want. I hope there's 50 Moscow's. And uh, and twenty media companies that are that like it's not a zero sum game. I hope there are, uh, you know, tens of thousands of Christians doing good business in all of the areas of human life and domain and culture. Not just art. I mean, plumbing and uh, HVAC and building and uh, data and you know, white collar, blue collar. So we're on the same team, and, and I hope that that comes through as well, that we, we really hope you guys are celebrating and supporting good work everywhere you see it in, in Christian culture. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of ground to take over for Christendom. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure uh, in this conversation. And to our listeners, thank you for your support. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not yet, you can follow us on Patreon, support the show there. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, Festinalente, make haste slowly.